Medical imaging is used to understand what is going on inside the human body and prescribe treatment. With new image processing and machine learning techniques, the traditional machine imaging techniques such as CT scans can be enriched to get a more sophisticated diagnosis. HeartFlow uses data from a standard CT scan to model a human heart and understand blockages of blood flow using simulations of fluid dynamics. In today's episode, Razik Yusfi and Leo Grady from HeartFlow describe the data processing pipeline for the company and what their technology stack looks like. We discuss AWS, we discuss biology, we discuss a lot of different topics, and this was a really enjoyable episode at the intersection of biology and computer science. Leo Grady and Razik Yusfi are engineers at HeartFlow. Razik and Leo, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, Jeff. Thank you for having us. I've been trying to do more shows on the intersection between biology and engineering, so I think this is a great fit. HeartFlow uses data from standard CT scans to model the human heart, and understand blockages of blood flow. And we're going to walk through how that works, including some machine learning techniques. But I want to start at a high level so that people understand what this domain is once we start diving into the engineering aspects of it. So let's start with the idea of cardiovascular disease. What does that mean? Coronary artery disease is the number one cause of death in the world. So one out of three people die of coronary artery disease. And the coronaries are the blood vessels that feed the person's heart. When one of those gets blocked, you can have a heart attack and die or or have a severe impairment. How preventable is coronary artery disease once it's identified? Well, there it depends on the severity, and there are multiple different treatments available. So at the lowest level of severity, uh, the disease can be treated with medication. And going up from that, uh, it's a stent. So a stent's a little metal tube that you put inside the artery and you open it up to open up the blockage. And then if the patient has very severe cardiovascular disease, then uh, the next step would be bypass surgery. What we focus on here at HeartFlow is the decision between medication and a stent, which uh, can be a very difficult diagnosis to make for the physician. Describe what classic CT imaging is. So CT is computed tomography. It's an x-ray in 3D. And what it does is it enables you to uh, look at a 3D, very high resolution uh, scan of the patient's anatomy. And it was uh, performed with sufficient resolution, both temporal and spatial, about 10 years ago. And that's when cardiac CT got on the market in the first place to assess uh, coronary arteries. And with CT, typically, you can see whether there's a blockage. The problem with CT by itself is you can't really determine how severe it is and how obstructive it is to blood flow. So a doctor does a CT scan, looks at the CT scan, and then makes a judgment of what the treatment is going to be. And because of the limited fidelity of the CT scan, sometimes that treatment may be not the best course of action. Yeah, that's right. So with CT, basically, you can tell whether the patient has disease or not. But if they do have disease, you can't tell how much blood is really being prevented from getting to the person's heart. So usually the next step after a CT is you say, okay, well, this this patient has disease, and they go for an invasive test. And in this invasive test, what will happen is they will actually take a catheter, they'll go inside the patient, push it all the way through the vascular system, And they'll measure the blood pressure before the blockage and after the blockage. And then they see, based on the change in pressure across the blockage, how severe the the cardiovascular disease is for that patient. That sounds like an unpleasant procedure. It's unpleasant. It's dangerous. There's something like a 1% mortality rate uh, for... Just for the test. Just for the test, yeah. And it's also expensive. And the big issue, too, is that About 75% of the time when you do this test, you find out that the patient has non-obstructive disease to the point where you can treat the patient with medication and you don't need a stent. So what we're trying to do is prevent uh, that test from being done unnecessarily by doing this test effectively 
uh, completely non-invasively just from the CT scan. So we're going to get into how that works. The idea is that by taking the CT scan imaging and putting it through some machine learning, some image processing, you can avoid this challenge of taking the blood pressure before and after the blockage so that you can model how this blood flow is going rather than taking these direct measurements. So you're going to be deriving from fluid dynamics based on the imaging how the blood is flowing. So at a high level, how accurate is that technique relative to the technique of taking blood pressure measurements before and after the blockage? So what we do is we we extract the anatomy from the patient's CT uh, through a series of computer vision algorithms and machine learning techniques. And then based on that 3D anatomy that we extract for each patient that, that comes to us, uh, we then use, as you mentioned, computational fluid dynamics to calculate the blood pressure before and after the blockage. We've done now three big clinical trials to validate the accuracy, and we are um, we're in the uh, the last one was somewhere in the the low to mid eighty percent in terms of accuracy. What that means is that there is a a cutoff clinically of 0.8 which is the ratio of the blood pressure before and after the blockage. So above 0.8, you say the patient doesn't need a stent. Below 0.8, patient does need a stent. And so when I'm talking about accuracy, it's being our, our calculation is on the same side of that 0.8 cutoff as uh, the invasive measurement. Now that we have an overall picture of the idea of what heart flow does, Razik, maybe you could talk a bit about the software architecture of this process. You gave a talk at the O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference a while ago, so I know that you're talking about this, you're thinking about this a lot. Give me a, an overall idea of how HeartFlow's software works. Uh, we initially start by ingesting the CD image out of the hospital's infrastructure. And to do so, uh, we deploy a thin virtual appliance within that hospital's infrastructure that connects directly to the CT scan at the hospital. Uh, the, the role of that uh, thin virtual appliance is to basically send us the data to our uh, cloud infrastructure. Once we have received the data, we process that entire data set with a bunch of machine learning and deep learning algorithms. Uh, and that is a computationally, exp uh, computationally expensive process. But by the end of it, we have a high-fidelity 3D model of the heart and coronaries. Once that 3D model is generated, we review it on-premises uh, by trained heart flow technicians that are pretty much correcting the model uh, to generate a very accurate and precise um, model definition. After the model has been generated, we then send it to our computational fluid dynamics uh, algorithms, and we solve it to pretty much compute uh, the flow at uh, all the different points in that uh, 3D mesh. Once the mesh has been solved, we then use a couple of techniques for off-screen rendering and we automatically generate a PDF report that contains images with the different FFRCT values um, pinned onto that model. We have that report being reviewed and once it's reviewed, we ship it back to the customer. Breaking this up into the different components of that pipeline, the first step is you've got that classic CT scan that we've had for a decade, this technology, and you put that CT scan into a heart flow analysis, and you get a patient-specific anatomic model of the arteries. What are the algorithms and the software that are involved in converting that CT scan into that anatomic model of the arteries? Yeah, so... I'm going to start at a very high level and then Leo can maybe dig into some of the details of these algorithms. But what we typically do is we pretty much have a lot of uh, uh, algorithms written in C++ and we have a, a, a pipeline uh, that's written in Python and we run a bunch of different stages to extract the aorta, uh, the center lines of that 3D model, the lumen associated uh, to these center lights in that 3D model. And we pretty much general, uh, generate a final mesh out of that. Uh, Leo, maybe you want to dig into more specifics there? 
Yeah, so in, in order to perform the calculation for the fluid dynamics, we need to know, uh, as Rezik mentioned, the lumen, which is the area of the artery where blood can flow. We also need to know the overall mass of the person's heart in order to be able to calculate the demand for blood in that patient. So all these things get extracted using a series of uh, computer vision algorithms, uh, shape models, and um, uh, medical imaging analysis algorithms that have been trained using our uh, annotated database using deep learning. Are these algorithms that have been around for a while, are they off the shelf in some sense, or was it mostly having to write everything from scratch yourself? One of the interesting things that we have to face, so I, I've been in medical imaging now for, for a while. I worked at Siemens for a long time, uh, which dealt with a lot of these medical imaging analysis problems. And one of the, the challenges that we have to deal with is both uh, robustness, trying to deal with multiple different uh, scanner vendors, multiple different geographies, artifacts, noise, and so on. Uh, but the other is the level of precision that's required. So if we are off by just a voxel or two in terms of estimating the size of the person's coronaries, that can have very profound impact in the patient's uh, CFD calculation. So in other words, we need an extremely precise and extremely accurate uh, image segmentation, uh, which is what provides us these 3D models. And that's different than what's been existing in the field. So we haven't been able to use just off-the-shelf components. We've had to really build a lot of our own. As you, you're probably familiar, Jeff, deep learning has really come on the scene uh, very strongly in the last four years or so. So a lot of that work is is all fresh and new, and there are multiple different companies that have been taking different approaches on it. We've really been tailoring these algorithms and these architectures to our, our specific system and our specific problems. My limited understanding of what makes a problem a good character, a, a good uh, fit for deep learning is you've got a giant sample of data and you're not sure how to... Uh, label that data. You're not sure how to extract features from that data, um, but you've got such a large data set that you can give the deep, you can tell the deep learning algorithms, hey, give me some features that are widely represented in this data set or find some themes or could you give me an idea of, let's just like talk broadly about what makes a, a problem a good application for deep learning? Because I know deep learning doesn't solve everything. No, it doesn't. But one of the areas of real strong success for deep learning has been in imaging and computer vision problems. So right. we're lucky in that sense. And you're right that the amount of data and the amount of annotation the data really makes a difference in terms of your ability to be successful with deep learning. I think one of the reasons that machine learning in general has not been very well applied to medical imaging has been a lack, uh, not a lack of data, but a lack of annotations for those data sets. So if you take a typical hospital, they can have thousands, tens of thousands of uh, patient scans, but they're just a collection of pixels. So they're just completely unstructured data. The value comes in having both the pixelated data and somebody to go in and say, okay, well, this region is the heart, this region is the vessel, this is disease, and so on. And that is much harder to come by because doctors don't do that on a a day-to-day -day basis. But HeartFlow, because of our business model uh, as a service company, a cloud-based company, uh, we are able to achieve not only a lot large data set, but also a large amount of annotations because every patient that comes through, as Razik mentioned, not only do we run our automated pipeline, but we have trained technicians who make corrections and edits, and then we can feed those back into the learning system. Now, you do need annotations, you're saying? You do need the images to be annotated and labeled? Classically, deep learning is uh, applied in what's called supervised learning situations, mm -hmm. where you have both right. uh, the data and the training of what you're looking for. Uh, there, there are also efforts in, in unsupervised learning, uh, but supervised learning is much more of a, a solved problem or much more of a um, 
better controlled, better conditioned problem. So fortunately, we're in that position where we have both the data and the annotations, and we can really leverage deep learning to to its hilt. So what what defines a deep learning solution versus a machine learning solution? Like I I've understood a little bit about machine learning for a long time in the sense that you've got you know you, if you've got labeled training data, you can put that labeled training data into an algorithm and it will uh, identify the themes that uh, are associated with those f- labeled features. Um, so what is different about deep learning? Yeah, that's right, Jeff. So deep learning is a subset of machine learning. It's it's a set of techniques that are based around uh, artificial neural networks. And artificial neural networks are have been developed for, for decades. And they, they've kind of come in phases, uh, you know, in the 80s, then they went out of favor, and then came back in the 90s, and then went out of favor, and, and they're back now. And Basically, with every iteration of these artificial neural networks, uh, there have been a substantial number of improvements to them. And one of the things about deep learning uh, that makes it deep is that there are artificial neural networks with multiple different layers, often many more layers than have been used in the past. And previous iterations of of neural networks with lots of layers ran into trouble in terms of training them and... um, basically not being able to harness large amounts of data sets in order to achieve full training. But based on multiple improvements over the last decade, uh, a lot of these problems have been solved. And so now using machine or neural networks with multiple layers, many deep layers, uh, can be used to achieve really great results. But you, you achieve better results when you have very large data sets. Give me an idea of how deep learning is applied to the construction of the anatomic model of the arteries. What are you doing with this giant data set? Um, how are you applying deep learning to it? The key for us is getting the dimensions of the person's arteries and really understanding the size of, of a blockage. Unfortunately, it's not that simple. So all of these patients, when they uh, go for a CT scan, they get contrast. And that lights up their arteries so that they're brighter than the background. Uh, but there are certain kinds of disease with calcium, uh, where you have uh, very calcium is much brighter, and so it it will obstruct uh, your ability to see the the person's vessels. Also, you have complex disease and bifurcations. You have mixed mixtures of disease. You have poor image quality. If you have a large patient, for example, you'll have a lot of noise. And so because the vessels are very small, uh, trying to extract the lumen dimensions, really the, the limit of the resolution of the CT, is very challenging. So effectively what we're predicting with the deep learning is the dimension size of the uh, artery at every centerline point along the trace of the vessel. How do you benchmark the accuracy of the models that you're building? Yeah, it's a great question. So we, we benchmark it really in two ways. So one way is by doing the whole system, calculating these blood pressure values, and then validating them against the invasive measurements. Uh, but another way is to validate the, just the anatomy itself, the deep learning results. And for that, we have to have a gold standard. The gold standard currently in coronary artery imaging is invasive imaging as well. So you can use uh, an invasive mm-hmm. ultrasound probe or an invasive uh, OCT probe, uh, which is an optical probe. And then you can see very fine resolution uh, anatomy inside the patient's vessel. Mm. So in some how patients... Close, how close are you getting to being able to mimic that? So it's interesting. Our, our correlation coefficient between the CT and the invasive imaging is at a level that is uh, at or exceeding everything that's been published for expert reads of the CT and the uh, the invasive imaging. And that's fully automatic. Wow. Yeah, so there's no, no invasiveness. Um, is the... So what would be the... Uh, can you give me like more um, like absolute 
measurements of like the fidelity uh you know of the of of the heart flow technique versus the actual invasive technique i mean i, I totally believe that it's better than anything published but how does it actually compare to the invasive techniques in terms of the uh pressure measurement or in terms of the or anatomy? just the well uh i guess i'm curious about both but i was i was more referring to the anatomy so we're we're going to publish on this very shortly with a study that we've been doing uh with Japanese collaborators where we have CT and invasive imaging. I'd have to check, but I think the average uh, absolute error we had was 0.24 millimeters, uh, which is less than the size of a voxel of CT. Okay. I don't know what that means. <laughs> it sounds reasonable. It's really good. So, okay. I believe you. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the next phase, I mean, you do. You say we've talked through this. We've gone really deep on this phase of building the anatomic model of the arteries, and then the next phase is you build a physiology model. What does that mean? So, uh, in order to calculate the the fluid dynamics uh, results, you need to know how much pressure is being input into the coronaries and what the resistance of the coronaries uh, on the the very small side are. And both of those you can't measure very easily from a CT image. So we have to use other information in order to uh, estimate these values for each patient. Okay. So can you talk more about like, the software that's involved in the physiology model development? Yeah, this, this was really the project of our founder, Charlie Taylor, who uh, worked on blood flow modeling and and patient physiology modeling uh, at Stanford for uh, almost 20 years before founding this company. But basically, you can use some population statistics and some personalization to estimate the patient's blood viscosity, the input uh, pressure. Uh, and then based on the, the coronary anatomy size uh, at the limits of the resolution of the CT, you can estimate the amount of territory in the patient's heart that's being fed by that vessel. And from that, you can work back to the amount of resistance that is being experienced to blood flow and blood pressure downstream. And then we roll all of this into the, uh, the calculation for the, the blood flow and, and validate that against the invasive measurements. Do we understand fluid dynamics well enough to model the flow of blood through the heart accurately once we have this anatomic model and this physiology model? Yeah, it's a great question. So fluid dynamics are really described by the Navier-Stokes equations, and those have been known for, um, I think, since the 1800s. However, solving them can be challenging and computationally expensive, especially in complex flow situations where you have turbulence and things like this. However, given a, a domain, given a, an anatomy, and given the right boundary conditions as determined by the physiology, then it's just an issue of solving these equations accurately and quickly. And this is one of the, the challenges that we've struggled with at the company is because the doctors want the results back quickly, uh, but classical CFD can take hours and hours and hours to compute. And so we've had to really leverage the, the AWS architecture uh, in order to make these computations fast and feasible in a clinical setting. Now, this gets really interesting. Uh, maybe uh, Razik can talk about this in more detail. I, I was going to ask about the latency because it seemed to me like, oh, you know, this is not a latency-sensitive problem. You just send, send the CT scan to the cloud, and, you know, you can give it a bunch of time uh, to get a really high-fidelity imaging. But it sounds like actually latency is a big deal and you want to get the results back quickly and this image processing can take a while what are you doing for the on the aws architecture are you do you have you built a way of distributing this computation or like um doing some kind of map type of thing uh maybe you want to talk about more about how you're leveraging the aws architecture yeah sure um so we're actually not doing any anything related to MapReduce whatsoever. Um, when you think about, um, so again, like there are multiple aspects. When you think about the the computational fluid dynamics, um, the problem is basically that you need to have a lot of CPU, 
right? The more CPU you have, uh, the faster the, the solution is going to converge and the faster you will get your results. Uh, one of the typical challenges is that you are CPU bound on a lot of the Amazon instances. And the easiest way to get around that is by building a cluster of machines that you connect to one another and that you make aware of one another and you use um, messaging pipelines like MPI uh, in order to pretty much distribute the computing across all these different nodes. Uh, building that setup is to some extent not necessarily challenging, but you need to <clears throat> take into account a couple of factors like the scalability. So the more data you want to process, the more cluster of machines you're going to want to set up altogether. And you have to pretty much create this cluster of machines together, but also take them down together. Otherwise, you're going to spend a lot of money. So this is pretty much what we're doing. We pretty much like came up with the ideal number of CPU that we need. And we are building this cluster of machines to take uh, the advantage of most of the hardware Amazon can provide us in order to do that. When it comes to uh, the anatomy part, the setup is uh, completely different. It's different because we we have a lot of different hardware requirements. Some of the algorithms require a lot of CPU. Some of the algorithms require a lot of memory. Some of the algorithms actually require neither. They can just be run on a very small instance. So what we do there is we're trying to be a little bit smarter when it comes to uh, pretty much running uh, the algorithms on um, the set of machines that will give us the the better performance for what we need to do. Uh, originally, what we did is pretty much just think about it as a as a minimum instance uh, requirements that we need, and we're gonna find the minimum instance that we need and run everything there. But what we're currently doing is a little bit smaller, and what we're, we're trying to pretty much schedule based on the hardware requirements. Uh, some of the algorithms that will require another GPU, that will require another lot of memory, that will require another, a lot of uh, CPU, both to save money, but also to be able to pretty much um, run the algorithm in a much faster time so that you are mentioning latency, so that we can pretty much finish computing that anatomy as fast as we can by leveraging a lot of the different hardware, yet not necessarily spending a lot of time transferring data left and right. Do you have an SLA that you guarantee you will finish the rendering in uh, like so, so, some predictable length of time? Yeah, we guarantee 48 hours, but we're striving to drive that down to, uh, you know, less than an hour as much as possible. And the reason is because every hospital runs a, at a different tempo and a different cadence. Sometimes... They are happy to get the results a few days later. Uh, but increasingly, as they are starting to rely on our, our technology clinically, they want the results back quickly. And some hospitals have even started using uh, HeartFlow to address patients in the emergency room, in which case the turnaround time is very, very important for them. Wow, that's so interesting. It takes two days. So... That, that's what we guarantee. Me, it doesn't take too. Oh, it's, it's right, right. Certainly, that's certainly. what we guarantee. But yeah. can, can you give me some insight on why a computer vision problem like this would uh, potentially take forty-eight hours when you have things like self-driving car systems that are apparently—I mean, I've never seen a self-driving car in the wild—but apparently they're good enough to be doing this image processing on the fly. They're good at good enough to uh, like identify oh this is a tree this is a person this is a mailbox versus where you have a much longer sla with the heart what what's the difference in the machine the computer vision problem there it's not the speed of the computer vision itself it's the 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 main uh bottleneck in our system is really around the human component of doing the editing and the checking of what the machine has produced so because we have such requirements in terms of accuracy and precision that we have our trained technicians have to go through every case and look at it at a very detailed level. And that can take some time, especially if it's a very complex patient. Uh, with, I mean, we see patients with uh, very uh, large amounts of disease, but we also see patients that have anatomical anomalies. We see patients that have very uh, strange conditions. And for those reasons, it, sometimes it just takes a little bit longer. And the the influx of cases is not 
steady. So there'll be times when we don't have very many cases coming in, and then we'll have spikes with lots and lots of cases coming in. And for that reason, we can just get backed up with this human component, especially if they're complex. This is, of course, why the demise of the human in the hospital has been uh, greatly overstated, like in in the in the sense that people are talking about like, oh, you know, the radiologist is going to be out of a job in five years. And it's so clear that the human computer interaction component of uh, of things like heart flow, I mean, it is is only getting increasingly accentuated. Can you talk more about the interaction between or what the human in the loop does here? Yeah, they're basically doing quality control on our system and enabling it to handle both outlier cases, but also really ensure the quality of it. And you raise a really great point. I was just at the big radiology conference uh, earlier last week, and there was a lot of talk about radiology in the future and deep learning. And I think one way to think about this is uh, the way that Kasparov has talked about chess playing computers. So today, a chess playing computer can outperform any human. Uh, however, a human with the chess playing computer can outperform any chess playing computer. And Kasparov has talked about this interaction of a, a human with a computer. He's called it centaurs that are basically half man, half machine, and can outperform either one by themselves. And I think this is where we're driving toward, in both in radiology and here too in heart flow. Yeah, and there's, you know, you could certainly say, okay, well, the centaur situation is just a. Uh, this is only going to last for. This is something that is not going to last. Like in in a couple decades, we're going to get to the point where, uh, oh, you know, the 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 centaur has the centaur process has successfully trained the computer to do all the work on its own. I think it's very hard to say that with any conclusiveness at this point because especially because like it's it's kind of conceivable for maybe that to happen with chess because as complex as chess is I think chess is a much lower order of magnitude complexity to solve by a computer than something like diagnosing heart disease um I don't know would you would you say that's accurate yeah, we're not we're we're never setting out to replace a physician in any way. We're really trying to enable the physician to have more information and more data and take the same CT scan that they've been operating with for the last 10 years and get more information out of it and really be able to get that information quickly, accurately, precisely and beyond what they can see with their their eye. And with, armed with all of that additional data, all of that additional quantification, they need to learn how to interpret it. They need to learn how to use that to maximize the benefit of the patient. But that's not something that, that heart flow, that's not something that the computer is going to do for them. It's just going to provide them all of this new information they didn't have before. And it's up to them to figure out how to use it to treat the patient. Razik, you talked about the the idea that you need, the you have these very specific hardware requirements for processing the images as expeditiously as you can. Um, can you talk more about the AWS abstractions that you use? I mean, AWS has all these services that you could use, but they also have just uh, more infrastructure as a service things where you just select what processors you need, and these things are uh, less like AWS-specific abstractions. They're more about, oh, do you want an M3 large or a um, you know, do you want this type of processor or that type of processor? Do you want this type of storage or that type of storage? Are you using the AWS specific abstractions like Kinesis uh, or um, I don't know Elastic Load Balancers or something? Are you using these kinds of things, or are you using just uh, more generalized infrastructure technologies? Uh, it's a good question. Um, we actually leverage quite a few uh, Amazon services. Um, on top of uh, the entire image processing or CFD pipeline, we basically also operate websites and databases, um, APIs, and all these uh, all, all these additional components. Uh, when you think about those, we are definitely leveraging um, Amazon to do the load balancing, for example, uh, to do the databases. We are using RDS and we're using MySQL as a database today. Uh, we're using a lot of the encryption mechanisms. Encryption for us is is extremely important because we need to basically encrypt all the protected health information at rest and in transit. 
and having a lot of different uh, Amazon services that are uh, built for uh, for HIPAA pretty much and allows us to securely transmit, process and store the data is something that's really important. And when you when you look at all these services, we've been able to design a system that uh, relies on um, buckets, for example, to store all the data, databases again, like um, uh, RDS to to pretty much store all the metadata and so on and so forth. You mentioned compliance. I have heard compliance as something that gets in the way of a lot of people starting businesses in the medical domain. Talk more about what the what what does that term mean, compliance? What kinds of things do you have to do to be compliant or HIPAA compliant? So there are a lot actually to that aspect. When it comes to designing the system, uh, like I just mentioned, it uh, means handling the protected protected health information with care. Um, that in that involves pretty much uh, enabling secure securely transmitting the data from the hospital infrastructure to the cloud, making sure that the data is always encrypted when we store it. So in the different data storage places. Also making sure that when we process the data and use that protected health information, everything is still secure. So that's one of the aspects of it. The other thing is we have a lot of different regulatory requirements when it comes to storing that protected health information in specific regions. Japan is a good example. Uh, we're operating in Japan, but we need to ensure that the protected health information never leaves Japan. So we've been able there to pretty much leverage the Amazon cloud to and design a system where we can dissociate the PHA information leave it in Japan, do entire case processing in the US and trigger all the different algorithms that we have in the US. And on its way back, we're reattaching that protected health information in Japan and only in Japan. So this is, for example, one of the, one of the things that we have to deal with on a daily basis. The other thing is the impact on software practices, uh, where it is very common in a lot of software companies to do continuous deployments, uh, get to production multiple times a day, it is a lot more challenging for us. Uh, we have a lot of delays uh, incurred by uh, just the fact that we're regulated. Sometimes you can pretty much come up with a new algorithm that will increase the uh, accuracy like Leah mentioned, but you cannot just use yet that algorithm in all of the regions because it's not being cleared or it's only cleared in one region or the other, and you have to put that on the shelf pretty much and just wait for it to be clear so that you can plug it into your entire pipeline and system and use it. So yeah, these are the some of the impacts that uh, compliance have uh, on us on, the, on a daily basis. Do either of you have a particular editorial opinion on Compliance? Do we have too much compliance? Do we have too little compliance? I mean, I guess we're talking about two different things. We're talking about the compliance that gives people privacy, that ensures their data is private. And then we're also talking about the compliance of building systems that actually work and have been verified by a third party to provide a level of accuracy um, as a treatment or I guess as an identification system, identifying coronary uh, or cardiovascular disease. D- what are your opinions on on regulation? Do we have too much of it, too little of it? Well, I think obviously it's very important for everybody to have their own uh, health data maintained in a private and secure fashion. I don't think any of us really wants that being publicly known or, or publicly accessible. And I think the regulations are, are well-intentioned and I think for the most part, reasonable. Uh, however, there, it's a patchwork from different countries of how, how those laws work. And because there's no consistency there, we, we have to navigate this, this landscape, which changes and, and can be tricky. Uh, from the software development standpoint, I think that the, the rules are actually, it's interesting because they, they are, uh, guidelines in a lot of ways for how to do software development. And there are certainly uh, requirements. We are audited by both the FDA and by uh, other bodies in, in other uh, countries. However, I think because medical device development was traditionally a very slow process, a very hardware-driven process, these regulations are uh, interpreted and classically executed in a way that doesn't fit a software or a cloud-based uh, environment. 
And so one of the things that we've really been doing is, is rethinking how to do software development in a very fast, very modern way that still fits within the compliance guidelines. And I think for the most part, that is, that is possible, but it's certainly unusual and, and it's an area that we're doing things differently from other companies. What are you doing differently? How, what kinds of processes have you put in place? So there are a bunch, actually. Just to echo what Leo was saying, um, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these additional mechanisms make a lot of sense. Uh, securing the data of your customers should be done in every software company, right? Ensuring that the product that you put out there is the best product and that you're pretty much checking uh, in every way that you're delivering the best results is something that every company should be doing. That being said, um, again, uh, we have a lot of additional delays and most of the processes we put in place are, um, pretty much ensuring that we control the software at every, uh, every possible stage in terms of requirements. We have internal uh, cross-functional sign-offs. We're doing code reviews on everything that we're pushing. We're doing extensive testing of all the different bits and pieces to ensure that every piece of our component that gets out is um, verified by uh, an additional, um, additional department. And all, uh, in addition to all the best uh, engineering software practices that a lot of companies are doing today. A lot of times the way that these, uh, these compliance guidelines are interpreted are in a classical waterfall setting and trying to adapt them to a, a faster iterative development that still ensures all of the quality and all of the compliance and the documentation has been uh, something that, that's different and one thing that we've really had to to think about how to interpret uh, these guidelines to to maintain compliance and maintain all of the quality and, and the well intention of them, uh, but to be able to to move more incrementally and and faster. I guess you do have the advantage of uh, being a SaaS. Like uh, even though you, I'm sure exactly. you have, I mean you have all these difficulties towards regulation, but once you get Heartflow in place in in a hospital. And how they're using it, you know, once they go from just doing regular old CT scans to CT scan plus the heart flow process, then you, you've got the SAS in place, and then you can just push updates to it however you want to. In that sense, you've got the Agile uh, as much as any SAS company. Yeah, that's right. Can you talk more about the process of getting heart flow accepted? I mean, you know, I imagine you have to go to these doctors and basically say, I know you've got this practice that you have been doing for years and years and years and years. We want to introduce this other layer of analysis into it. I imagine that can be a difficult process to try to get people to integrate in. Well, every the introduction of every medical technology follows multiple stages. So in the first stage, you're you're building it. Then you have to prove that it works. Then you have to get regulatory clearance to sell it. Then you have to get insurance companies to pay for it, and then you have to get people to actually use it and adopt it in regular practice. So every technology follows these uh, these stages, and we're no different in that sense. One of the advantages that we have is that because there's this invasive measurement, and all we're doing is replacing that with a non-invasive version of the same test, then people have a reference and they understand what the test is, and they know how to interpret it. And they, they know what the results mean. So we're not going to them and saying, here's this completely new test. Uh, you know, the machine has learned how to diagnose your patient for you or anything like that. We're saying, okay, well, this is the same test that you're familiar with, but now it's done non-invasively through a CT scan, through this computational method. They don't necessarily understand that at first, but through some education, they can understand how it works. And that gives them the confidence with the clinical trials that it's accurate and can be used clinically. I want to begin to, as we draw to a close of this conversation, just go back to the software process and how cool this is. Because you take, so just for people who have not followed closely, you take a CT scan, which is kind of like a video or a series of three of uh, x-ray images. You take that collection of images and you put it through HeartFlow software. HeartFlow does three things. It creates a model of the arteries 
and then it creates a physiology model around those arteries, and then it runs blood flow simulations around or within that physiology model. Did I miss anything in the explanation of how that works that you think would be interesting to the listeners? Well, I think like this is a very good summary. The additional thing that we do at the end is uh, we automatically generate a PDF report, and this is really what the doctors are looking at. Uh, we're providing them with a, a bunch of set images and views, and we identify like on these models where some of the issues with the blood flow could be. And this is very much the last stage, the entire reporting pipeline that we have and automation around generating these reports and giving them to the, to the customers. And it's not just the PDF report. We also provide an interactive 3D model that runs in WebGL in browsers that support that. So... That enables a physician to not only look at a static report and have something they can put in the patient record, but also to, to interact with the results and, and query the blood flow calculation, query the model at whatever location makes sense for them to better understand uh, the patient's disease and how they might go about treating them. Can Okay, so you, you can also provide information about, like, based on that uh, generated data, you can also provide suggestions for the treatment like you don't you don't just like say here's the output and leave it to the doctor to infer a treatment you can also say uh maybe based on this model of the heart and the fluid dynamic simulations we ran um and based on patients who have been similar to this patient stint might work uh medication might work other treatment might work Can, can you make those kinds of suggestions at this point we never tell the doctors how to treat the patients, but okay. because we're doing a non-invasive version of an invasive test, and that invasive test has been studied uh, through multiple large clinical trials, people understand how to interpret the results. However, one of the things that we've shown and that we are, are working on currently is a, a, an application in which the doctor can interact with the model to change it to simulate different treatments. So, for example, if you have two blockages uh, in series, one after the other, uh, and the doctor says, okay, well, this is a severe problem. I need to put a stent in. They, they have to wonder, do I put in one stent? Do I put in two stents? If I put in one, do I put it on the first one or do I put it in the second one? And so what, what we're going to be able to provide them is, is an application where they can interact with the 3D model and they can basically look at what happens if they open up the first blockage and then we can recalculate the blood flow and then they can say, okay, well, if I put a stent in there, that may be more effective than putting a stent in the second blockage, for example. And that's an application that will then allow them to look at these different scenarios, these different treatment scenarios virtually, and say, what would happen if I treat the patient like this? And that way they can, again, do everything through software, everything through computation, but figure out really what the best treatment is for the patient instead of today where they have to use their judgment uh, but they don't always get it right uh, in terms of figuring out exactly what the right stent location is or, or where to place it. What I love about HeartFlow and this product that you're building is it's really an example of personalized medicine and where we are going and how these technologies that have seemed like really maybe incremental improvements like cloud or things that lead to incremental improvements cloud computing open source software uh, improved machine uh, computer vision techniques uh, you know gradual increases in hardware capability these things compound and then they lead to things that look like just massive step changes like you look at heartflow what heartflow does relative to the idea of an invasive procedure where you're taking the blood pressure before and after a coronary blockage it's it's just really i don't know it's a it's uh inspirational i you know i don't don't want to like pitch your product more than than you guys are but um you know it's 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 cool so what are the other areas in the medical space that seem like there are they're poised for step changes uh i don't know what are the other things that are exciting in this space to you right now well, first of all, thank you, Jeff. Uh, we're really excited about what we're doing, too. And, and we really feel like you're right, that all of these different technologies have 
reached a level of maturity that if you put them together, you suddenly get capabilities from the software, from, from medicine that were just not available before. And HeartFlow is really the first company to use uh, fluid dynamics, patient-specific personalized simulations to help doctors make medical decisions and, and actually really treat patients. And today we've we've helped doctors, uh, we've been used clinically in about 7,000 patients, uh, and not only in the U.S., but in Europe and in Japan as well. So it's we're really doing something new. The FDA didn't know how to deal with us in the beginning, uh, and so we it's been a really great relationship uh, working together with them to help them understand the technology and, and to understand and help design the, the clinical studies that have, have enabled it to work. Uh, to, uh, to your question about other medical technologies, you know, looking at it from a software perspective, uh, like we do, I think that there are, there are a lot of companies that are starting to apply machine learning in, in multiple different areas. If you look at IBM with Watson, they've really invested very heavily in healthcare. There are a lot of other companies that are using deep learning to uh, help with diagnosis, help with quantification, uh, but nobody that's yet taken the step of doing personalization the way that we are with the physiological and and, um, computational modeling. Uh, 3D printing is another another technology, though, that's really become very prominent in radiology in recent years, but still hasn't found the killer app that that uh, some other technologies have. And I have to add, from a pure software engineering perspective, like it is very typical to, to be in that space and have uh, software being deployed within hospitals. But because we're a cloud company, pretty much software as a service company, we get to use all these nice and cool technologies on a daily basis to solve a problem that is quite different from a lot of different software engineering companies. And it is, it is mind thrilling to put at use all these technologies to something that is actually helping the patient in the, in the long run. It is really making a a big difference for all of us here. Razik, Leo, thank you guys for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Jeff, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having us, Jeff. Wow.